You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2007 Frankfurt Avenue. For more information, visit us at circleofhope.net. As many of you may know, I've spent the last uh, seven years or so here in Philly uh, as a carpenter. After I graduated college, I wanted to do something uh, non-intellectual and physical for a while. Um, so I kind of slid accidentally into carpentry. I started uh, working at Habitat, and then I got offered a job, and I was doing renovating houses and stuff in Mount Airy. Um, and now I build and install cabinets and casework in Germantown. Um, so, so we've been going through this series on artistry this um, season, this summer, been thinking a lot about the work we do and about how skill is a process of being changed by the objects that we work with and how we interact with them. Like when we're cutting, when I'm cutting or sawing a piece of wood, it requires so much of me, like a great amount of intention and attention. When you're pushing a piece of board across a saw, you have to pay attention to where the board is in relation to the fence, where your hands are in relation to the blade and how the board is reacting to the stresses inside the tree that are being unlocked. You see, when a tree grows, it's, it's a living being that's ever reacting to a changing and unpredictable world. When you're a tree, snow piles up on your branches, storms try to push you over. If you're planted on a hill, you'll always be fighting against gravity to stay upright and grow towards the sun. For instance, oh, that's what happens if you aren't good with the table saw. That was in the wrong order. There we go. These trees are growing on Slope Point. It's the southern end of New Zealand's southern island. These winds are coming from Antarctica. They're coming across the ocean and, and shaping these trees. And they will never be used for timber. They're, they're not good trees for furniture. These trees are. These trees are American chestnuts. These are old growth American chestnuts. These are the trees that were here when Europeans first came to America. They covered Pennsylvania and they covered most of the East Coast. Um, they grew tall and straight, um, which is one reason why they made great lumber and it's one of the reasons that they no longer exist. The other is an invasive parasite that came from East Asia. Um, Many of your homes here in Philadelphia are filled with American chestnut. Um, it is, a tr it is a easy to work with. It's, uh, it's what we use for a lot of trim work. But kind of what I want to get at is this idea that this tree kind of grew up uh, traumatically, and its body will always carry that. And trees like our bodies, they also carry the trauma that they've grown up with. And so when I working on a plank, when I get a plank from the sawmill, it's not just an inert piece of matter. The wood is, in many ways, still alive. It carries in its structure the struggle of its existence up until now. The board speaks back to me when I am working with the board. All that stress and tension expresses itself in new ways. A board that was straight is now bowed, like this one. I got those out of order. Um, when you cut a piece like this, if it pinches against the fence of the saw, it'll kick back. Now that happens at incredible speeds. You can pull your hand into the blade. It's, uh, it's a little scary. Um, just on Friday, I've got a 
big old bruise on my thigh because that happened. And when that happens, my heart starts to race, I start to sweat. My body literally goes into fight or flight mode because I've learned that this is a moment of potential catastrophe. The tree's trauma, in a way, is passed on to me. Also, all the work that I've done up until now, it's pretty much gone. That bent piece, I can no longer use for what I wanted to use it for. I have to start over. I have to adapt, adapt my technique to fit the boards. The trees grow as they may. And I, as a builder, have to build the furniture around the trees. We're in a relationship. The creator, me in this case, is shaped by the creation. The creator, me, I have a vision of what I want it to be. Um, I'm working towards expressing beauty. I see in this tree, I see on the plans, but that vision of beauty must be compatible with the medium, with the tree that I'm working with. And I want us to think about if we think that God works that way. I don't think many of us do. I don't, but I want to work with that tonight. What does it really mean for, uh, like Jeremiah 18 says, God to be the potter and us to be the clay? So I think for many of us, especially uh, many of us that are raised in more conservative traditions, uh, we're trained to read this passage in Jeremiah 18 kind of with fear and trembling. Like we're passive clay in the hands of like a powerful, all-powerful, unchangeable potter. God is totally in control, and we're just piles of dirt. And we hope that maybe it gets to be a cool cup at the end of the day. But I don't really think that's what the Bible says a lot of the time. Um, does anybody mind reading this nice and loud? The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Come, go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. The vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel, as seemed good to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Can I not do with you, O house of Israel, just as this potter has done, says the Lord. Just like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment I may declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. But if that nation concerning which I have evil, I will change my mind about the disaster that I intended to bring on it. And if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. Nice work, up. Um, so we have this great image of the artist at the wheel that is being forced to change and adapt their, their concept of what's possible in response to this input from the clay. Um, the clay is responding to the potter, and the potter is responding to the clay. God is responding to the world. Um, this vision of God, it changes based upon the input of the people. There's kind of this, and I think we see this a lot throughout the, the biblical story, especially through the Old Testament, um, where we see God promising mercy and then people asking and, sh and, and God is showing it to them. God seems kind of continually frustrated uh, and annoyed at how difficult it is for us as humans to like change and improve. Like God has this incredible view of like the future 
and, and kind of like how things could be, but we seem to keep screwing it up. But then we turn around and, and people change and God seems really surprised. <laughs> like, oh man, I hadn't planned on this. Um, let's, let's get another story. Shortly after, I'm just gonna put the text up here and kind of briefly go over it. Shortly after being freed from Israel, like 40 days after God spoke directly from, to his people on Mount Sinai, Aaron and some of the other Israelite leaders built this big, uh, massive golden calf in worship to God. Uh, Aaron says, like, we're going to worship God tomorrow with this calf I built. Um, and God spoke directly to his people in thunder and lightning, and they reduced God down to a statue, um, which is like exactly what God didn't want and had said several chapters before. God laid out this plan and future for the people where they would kind of have a communal relate, commune in relationship directly with the creator. And they keep building statues and asking for kings and kind of missing uh, the point of how this new promised land is supposed to work. And God is confused and hurt and angry and, and really preparing to destroy Aaron and the entire nation of Israel. But uh, Moses' request, he changes his mind. And then we have also this great story of Jonah, I, hadn't intended to read Jonah and I started reading I was like, this is a great story it's sarcastic and it's funny and there's lots going on um, Jonah is sent by God to go to Nineveh to try and get these people to regret um, for a little bit of context Nineveh was the capital of the uh, Assyrian Empire that's what it's called in the Bible now we call it the Neo-Assyrian Empire and they were the big bad empire kind of looming in the background during much of the Israelite kingdom period which is what's recorded in the Bible um, the, uh, as it's now known, the Neo-Syrian Empire is still historically remarkable because of how brutal they were and how ruthless, especially towards those who fought back against them. Like if you Google Neo-Syrian Empire, the second thing that comes up after, after map is cruelty. Um, so they've really kind of left a mark. Um, so Jonah is sent to his enemies to offer God's mercy. Um, to offer a new way. And Jonah, instead, he takes a boat in the other direction, gets thrown overboard as like a human sacrifice, uh, gets swallowed up by a giant sea creature, and then gets spit out and then goes to Nineveh. And it works, and it surprises even him. The people of Nineveh change their ways. They repent, they fast, it's the capital. So presumptively the king said like, this is true for everybody in my empire. Don't know if it was Historically true, but it is, it's, it's a story that shows us how God's working in the world. And then the, at the beginning of chapter 4, Noah, Jonah says, Jonah gets really angry and starts yelling back at God and saying, like, why did you do this? He, said, he kind of implies, like, I'm such a good preacher that I knew if you sent me there, they would all, do, they would all change their ways. <laughs> On one level, we see a great example of God kind of changing God's mind. We see the most brutal empire on earth responding to the hope and beauty of God's plan and kind of changing direction. We see uh, what to many outsiders would be like un the unworkable play of the Neo-Assyrian Empire responding to the hand of, uh, of God. Um, we also see Jonah who was supposed to be the good guy. He's the prophet from Israel. He's one of God's chosen people kind of becoming the unwilling and unworkable clay and God spends the rest of the book, the rest of chapter four, kind of hanging out there with Jonah and working it through. And I think a lot of times we're raised 
to read these stories and fill in parts that aren't there. We read, we read kind of the Protestant Reformation back on these ancient texts. The story says, like, God changes her mind, but, like, we all really know that God was going to forgive Aaron all along. It was all part of the plan. Um, or, like, God's wrath has to be satisfied, so then, you know, we do these rituals, we sacrifices, or Mo, jo, Moses prays for 40 days in his hands and knees, or God knew that Nineveh was going to repent and wasn't really planning on destroying them, but God just wants to come off as scary sometimes. But I don't think that's what the Bible is telling us. God's not distant and controlling and sitting on Mount Olympus. God is imminent and near. God is the smoke between us, the still small voice in our ear. God is shaping and molding and responding to us. God is sitting with the Jonah in us and calling us into more beauty than, we're no, than we know we're capable of. God is waiting with us until we can get there. God's surprised and overjoyed when we get it and when we join in. And we take up a saw, we take up clay, and we take up a plow, and kind of join in this healing, co-creating project. And so when we talk about God as an artist this season, I don't think it's enough to just talk about creating. I think we also have to take up talk about the work it takes to get there. To become an artist is to surrender oneself to the limits and idiosyncrasies of a medium and, and to engage in a collaborative act with something or someone outside yourself. The reaction I have to a saw blade binding, that's subconscious. It's an autonomic nervous reaction born out of a bad interaction that I had with a table saw five years ago. Every time I hear a piece of wood kick back, my body forces me to remember that cut on my finger and bleeding in the snow and pulling off my glove and being relieved to find that my finger was still there and wrapping my hand in paper towels and driving myself to the hospital for only four stitches and an x-ray. <laughs> it's a very physical response. And I think that's what it means to be human. It's the work that we do as artists is not just the work of our hearts or our heads, it's work done in our bodies. When I cut boards and make sawdust and listen to the wood and the saw as we all three work together towards beauty, I carry in my body the the trauma and memories of cuts and splinters and sawdust in my eyes and fail techniques and successful glue-ups. And I'm also working with the tree and, and the saw and their treeness and their sawness. We're fundamentally, even physically shaped by the work that we do. And that's what the act of uh, incarnation or of God becoming human in Jesus is all about. Jesus didn't pull on a skin suit as I at one time heard a pastor who's not from Circle Folks say, God became fully human. Um, not to trash a pastor, but it just really bothered me. <laughs> fully human. Jesus wasn't Bruce Banner like, with a really good meditative practice. He wasn't just waiting for a moment to burst out of his human shell and overthrow Rome with flaming swords and lightning bolts. He was human when he hit his thumb with a hammer. It hurt he think he probably cussed when his friends died. A part of him died too. When he, raised, when he was raised poor in a brutal political regime, building luxury homes for the rich and powerful, he felt that oppression. His Jewishness, his family, the time he was born, none of that was incidental. It made him who he was. It made him care about the people around him. It helps us to understand how God cares about us. I think God's calling us to rethink 
the ways that we think God interacts with the world, and we think the ways that we interact with the world. Too often we treat the people and the world and our bodies as objects to be dominated and manipulated and transcended. And we forget what it means to be incarnated, to be created, to be clay. We are not spirits in skin or individuals in a society or air-conditioned cities in a world on fire. To be potter, to be clay, is to be a whole being nested in an incredibly complex web of relationships and everything and everyone around us. We're related to God, we're related to each other, we're related to the world around us. And I think God is related in that same way. When we embody and embrace our connectedness, I think we're forced to look with new eyes upon all that we're connected to. Just as Christ was, just as God is, I think, every day. God is responding to our hurt. God is responding to the ways that our culture is in pain, in ways that we as humans globally are in pain. And I think that we're reflecting Christ when we engage with the people and communities and planets, planet around us to bring that beauty and justice into the world. Um, I forgot to put this up, but I just love this, this image. This is, this is an icon, and uh, it's a, from an Eastern tradition. Uh, and in it we see that Christ is not just rising. Uh, this is, I got this from a book uh, that this uh, John Dominic Crossan wrote, and he's, he's pointing out that Christ isn't just rising from the ground alone, like a lot of our Western icons show Jesus alone, just like Superman coming out of the grave. And here, Christ is pulling Adam and Eve with him into creation. And they're pulling back, and he's pulling harder. And so we're working in that tension between them. So I'm going to pray, and I want to go into a time of talk back. If I, it's just me with my ideas. I don't think that's enough. I, I want to hear what you're bringing to this. Um, I have my limitations, and I love the way that this community is bringing yourselves to it as well. So let's pray. Uh, Lord, help us to feel your call as we work with you towards a world that reflects your goodness and vision more fully. Help us to be shaped by you and be heard and affirmed and cared for as your vision for this time is uh, in many ways, being shaped by us. Amen. Have at it. And by that, I mean, does anybody have anything to respond to?
metaphors and stuff through that lens of uh, trying to raise a child, caring for the child, but also having the child be what the child is or how the child is versus how you would imagine or want the child to be. And that tension of, you know, this is what I hope, this is what I'm trying to do, and this is what's happening. Uh, and is there's something here that I need to be listening to instead of trying to force or tweak. And so, you know, it's hard for me to imagine God as being responsive to us because I, I'm definitely a person who sees God as unfixed, unchanging, you know, it's, even if it's, you know, uh, unclear to us and we're trying to putz around and figure it out, like, God sees all, knows all, and even the changes that we're making are anticipated. I guess into some, like, really deep sci-fi stuff right there, but all that being said, you know, it's just like, I, I never see God as being surprised. And I'm sort of kind of seeing how, as a parent, I can be surprised, even though I know my kid, mm -hmm. or kids, uh, and they, sometimes, I'm like, I expected you to really appreciate this and like this, and you didn't like it, and then you were got upset about it hypocrite. And that was the thing that really turned you on, you know what I mean? It's just like, so I, I could see God taking joy in us doing Visible mending is a beautiful thing. 
and um, specifically like the, the Japanese tradition of Kitsugi where you're the, the potter is looking at a broken object as an opportunity for beauty um, in the, the history of that object, um, repairing it with gold or silver or some other um, you know, precious uh, material so that it highlights and um, you know, lets people really see the, the brokenness as a part of the beauty. Um, I don't know, I, I love that as the process is not the finished object as absolutely envisioned from beginning to end by the artist um, or the maker or even the creator, but the process of the life and the brokenness and the repair and the mending and the, all of that is um, unpredictable mm -hmm. and part of the beauty. You responded to it, yeah. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.